Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. We're still talking about the day of the murders. I had mentioned to you in the last episode that Officer Harrington was clearly the best officer in the Fall River Police Department at that time, at least from what I could tell. And I want to give you a good example, a clear example of his eye for detail, his ability to remember things, his ability to focus. At the trial in June of 1893, 10 months after the murders took place, he was asked to describe the dress that Lizzie was wearing when he interviewed her on the afternoon of August 4th. Now, this was not the dress she had been wearing when she raised the alarm. And as I've said multiple times, Officer Harrington didn't get there early enough to see that dress. But listen to this description that he gives on the stand under oath without looking at any notes. He says, speaking of Lizzie, she was dressed in a, in a house wrap striped in pattern, a pink and light stripe alternating, pink the most prominent color or shade. On the light stripe was a diamond figure formed by small bars or stripes, some of which ran parallel with the stripe and others biased to it or diagonally. It was fitted to the form on the sides, stand-up collar plated on the sides and closely shirred in front. Shirred is S-H-I-R-R-E-D. And the defense attorney stops him and says, closely what? And Harrington says, shirred. That means gathered closely. It means there were smaller plates in front. The defense attorney says, go on. And Harrington says, from the waist to the neck, it was puffed, quite a number of folds in it. On either side, directly over the hip, was caught a small, narrow, bright red ribbon about three quarters of an inch or an inch in width. The ribbon was brought round in front and tied in a bow and allowed to droop. The dress was cut in a semi-train or bell skirt, as was worn by ladies that season. Unbelievable. An unbelievable description. The amount of detail is mind-boggling. And here's what's also incredible. Harrington, I think, had been on the police force for a number of years at that point. He must have been investigating cases. He was essentially a detective at the time of the Borden murders. He wasn't just a patrolman. Hilliard had enough sense to promote him and make him something more than a patrolman. You would think that Hilliard would have picked up on his ability to remember things, his ability to focus, his ability to organize his thoughts. And because the dresses become so important, you would think that Hilliard would have known or figured out or somehow learned that Harrington was the person he should be using to examine the dresses in the house. But instead, he uses Fleet, and he uses a state detective named Seaver, and we'll get to them later. But this gives you some idea of Harrington's eye for detail. As an aside, Harrington was the officer who took Eli Bentz, the drugstore clerk, to the Borden house on the evening of Thursday, August 4th, to identify Lizzie. And I did say that this ID was problematic. But keep in mind that in order to do a photo lineup, they would have had to arrest Lizzie first and take a mugshot of her. That wasn't practical on Thursday afternoon. And to do a lineup with Lizzie in the lineup, they would have either had to have her cooperate and come down to the station, and they would have had to find five other women of her age, her size, who'd be willing to serve in the lineup. It just wasn't practical. So I don't fault him for that. 
And I'm guessing that if there had been a way for him to do a photo lineup or an in-person lineup, he would have. Now, let me just say a few things about Fleet before I finish up. When he's cross-examined by the defense attorney at the trial in June of 1893, he looks like an absolute monkey. He looks like an idiot, a fool. And the defense attorney goes through the searches that Fleet made on the afternoon of Thursday, August 4th. Think about this for a second. You're the police. The murders have just happened within the last few hours. You have to understand that this is a critical time, that you don't want somebody walking off with evidence. You don't want somebody concealing or destroying evidence. If you're going to search the house and you've got two or three dozen police officers wandering around the property, do it thoroughly. Do a thorough search. Fleet is in charge at this point. Fleet is the person from the Fall River Police who is in charge of the search at the time that we're going to be discussing when I summarize this cross-examination. This is probably one in the afternoon, well before Marshall Hilliard has arrived. And the cross-examination basically goes, tell me about the search on the back of the house, the attic and the board and bedroom. Let's just talk about that. So Fleet goes up with these two officers, these two patrolmen who are just tagging along behind him. And he gets Bridget. Finally, he figures out that Bridget has the keys to the attic and she can get him the key to the board and bedroom, which I assume she retrieved from the sitting room, the mantelpiece. So Bridget takes him up and they go up to the attic and she unlocks the rooms up there. He can't remember when he testifies whether her bedroom was locked whether the other third floor slash attic bedroom was locked, that the attic itself was locked, and that was a storage space. He's asked what he did by way of search in Bridget's bedroom. Now, before I get into this, I will acknowledge that the suspicion was already starting to center on Lizzie, and I don't think the police particularly suspected Bridget an hour and a half or two hours into the investigation, but Bridget had been on the property. In theory, Bridget could have committed these murders. So as an officer, as an an investigating officer on the scene, you really need to go through her room if possible, if she'll allow it, if you can get access and look at her stuff. Because if she did commit either of these murders or played some role in either of these murders, she could have concealed the evidence, some evidence in her room. So When he's asked what he did up there, Fleet said, I don't even remember whether we went into a trunk or not. He was asked, did you look in the trunk? Were there trunks in Bridget's room? At first, Fleet goes, I don't remember. And then he says, oh, there was a trunk. We looked in it. We had to get Bridget to unlock it. Okay. And what did you do? We just looked in it. Did you look closely? No. Did you lift everything out and examine everything in the trunk closely? No. Okay. Tell me what you did about her clothing. Now, remember, again... In order to rule Bridget out, one way you might do that, one of the steps you probably ought to take is you ought to look at her clothing. She may have changed her dress. If she was involved in these murders and got any blood on any of her dresses, some other dress she might have been wearing that morning, she may well have come up to her room and changed out of it. So he's asked, did you look at the dresses in her room? Yeah, kind of. And I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say kind of, but he said whatever the 1892 equivalent is. Well, what were you looking for? I don't really know. What do you mean you don't know? What do you mean you don't know what you were looking for? Were you looking for blood? 
he grudgingly acknowledges on cross-examination that he was looking for blood, but at the same time, he says he wasn't looking closely. How many dresses did she have? I don't know. Well, give us your best estimate. I couldn't say. Why do you bother to search? Why are you up there searching? What is the point? Obviously, one thing he is looking for is he wants to make sure that there is no homicidal maniac in the attic or hiding in the closet or hiding somewhere on the third floor. So obviously he's looking for that. But why bother to open a trunk and look inside if you're not really going to look? Are you opening the trunk because you think maybe the murderer was a midget and the midget has climbed into a trunk? Because you're not lifting the stuff out to see whether there's a bloody axe under the blankets or under the sweaters or under the dresses that are folded up and kept in the trunk. And you're not even looking at the dresses carefully to see whether there's any blood on them. So then he goes downstairs with these two officers and he gets Bridget to unlock the Borden bedroom and he goes in and he's asked, what did you find there? And he goes, nothing. And the, de- and the defense attorney says, well, there were things in the bedroom, weren't there? And he goes, yeah. So you found something there, didn't you? Yeah. What did you find in there? Well, we found a bed. What did you do? We looked at the bed. What do you mean you looked at the bed? We looked at the top of the bed. Well, I assume there was no hatchet on the top of the bed? No. What else did you do? Is that it? Well, we looked under the bed. Did you find a murderer under the bed? No. Did you find a hatchet under the bed? No. Did you find anything interesting under the bed? No. Did the other two officers look under the bed? And Fleet says, I presume so. If you've ever watched The Three Stooges, you'll probably remember there are scenes where one of them is looking at something and then the other two are looking over their respective shoulders. So Moe's looking at something, Larry's looking at it over Moe's shoulder and Curly's looking at it over Larry's shoulder. We've got the three stooges here. We've got three guys looking under a bed, whether they looked at the same time or they looked in sequence. What's the point? One person looking under the bed ought to do it. So instead of doing this half-assed search with three people all participating in a half-assed search, how about you divide the room into three areas or you simply say to the other two, find something in the room and search it carefully. I'll look at the bed. I'll, I'll feel under the mattress. You look in the bureau and you, the other officer, you go look in the closet. Why do you have these guys tagging along? What's the point? This is a total waste of manpower. Let me just go a little bit further on the cross-exam. He's asked, was there a bureau? I don't know. Did you look in a bureau? Well, if there was one, we would have looked in it. That's pretty much verbatim his answer. Did you look in a closet? Yes. What did you find? Things. What did you find? I don't remember. Did you find clothes? I can't remember. He can't remember if there was clothing in the Borden's closet. Did you look at any dresses in that room? Yeah, but in the same way I looked at the dresses in Bridget's room, which means he didn't really. He ran his eyes quickly over the dresses. Again, what's the point? You've got two women in the house, both of whom had the opportunity to commit the murders, one of whom is showing a disturbing lack of emotion one of whom appears not to have liked one of the victims, that that meaning Lizzie didn't like her stepmother, 
why not look at the dresses to see if maybe Lizzie grabbed one of her overweight stepmother's dresses and slipped it on over her own and used it to cover herself when she committed the murders? It's not likely, but you're in there. Doesn't it make sense to look? This gives you an idea of the ineptitude that we're stuck with. This gives you an idea of the incompetence and ineptitude of this police department. And let me just say, as far as the hatchet, I'm sorry, as far as the handleless hatchet goes, the one that he left in the box, he's cross-examined about that at the trial. And he, he's asked about his testimony at the probable cause hearing in August of 1892. And he's asked about a question that was put to him at that probable cause hearing to the effect of, can you tell us everything that was found in the cellar of the Borden house at any time between the day of the murder and today, August 25th, or whenever the the hearing was, three weeks later, tell us everything that was found that might be considered a possible murder weapon. So he talks about the two hatchets and the two axes. He doesn't mention the handleless hatchet defense attorney goes over this with him and he goes, it had different kinds of ashes on it, right? Yes, it did. It wasn't dust. It was ashes, right? Right. Different from everything else down there. That's what you've testified to, right? Right. Okay. There was a clean break, right? Right. Okay. And you didn't consider that a possible murder weapon, did you? Because it is now, because now your prosecutor is trying to tell the jury this may be the murder weapon, but you didn't mention it at the probable cause hearing. Why not? Instead of saying, because at the time I didn't make the connection, I wasn't thinking, it just didn't occur to me, Fleet can't say that. He decides he can't say that. He doesn't want to say that. So he says, I didn't mention it because I didn't take it away with me from the Borden house. And the defense attorney goes, that wasn't the question at the probable cause hearing, was it? You were asked, what did you find? Are you telling me that you were allowed to answer the question? what did you find in any way you wanted because you didn't take things away? You think that if you didn't take something away that you didn't have to answer that question? You found this. You found this hatchet head with the clean break, with the different ashes on it. You found it. You didn't mention it. And you're telling us now the reason you didn't mention it was because you didn't take it away with you? He looks shifty. He looks a bit evasive. And he looks stupid. And the last thing I'll say about his testimony, and I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, but this is just to give you an idea of the arrogance, the lack of accountability, the stupidity, even for the trial of the century, the lack of preparation, the lack of anticipation as to what is going to be asked of him. He's asked at the trial by his attorney on direct, during the direct examination, he's asked these ashes that you notice on the blade. Were they also on the clean break? Did you notice them on the clean break? And I can't tell you right now whether he said, yes, I did notice them or no, I didn't when he was undergoing his direct exam. But what I can tell you is whatever he said while he was being examined one day by his attorney, he says the opposite when he's being cross-examined. So if he told his attorney, yeah, I saw the same ashes on the break. The next day, when he's asked on cross-examination the same question, he goes, no, there were no, I don't remember. No, there weren't any ashes. The defense attorney has a field day with him. He says, why did you say something different yesterday? And Lee goes, I don't know. I don't know. 
Is that the worst possible answer a witness could give in that situation? I, I think probably, short of because I'm I lied yesterday or or I'm lying today, that would probably be a worse answer, a more damaging answer. But I don't know why I changed my story. The answer is because it wasn't an important detail. I wasn't really thinking about it. I when I said what I said yesterday, I thought that was the right answer, but I guess now it was the wrong answer. I, I'm sorry. It wasn't foremost on my mind. I wasn't paying a huge amount of attention to whether there were ashes on the broken, clean fragment of the wood. It just wasn't a big deal. But he doesn't. So the defense attorney says, well, which one was true? Or were they both true? And Fleet says, well, they can't both be true. And so the defense attorney goes, well, take your pick. And Fleet goes, well, yesterday I thought that it was one way, but now I think it's the other. And Robinson goes, no, 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 no. You tell us now which one was it. Not what you thought yesterday. Tell us now today, were there ashes or weren't there? You see how he's got Fleet in a bind. And you may say, this isn't a big deal. This is a stupid little point. And it is a stupid little point, except Fleet has gotten himself into a box. He's been a bit careless. He hasn't paid attention to what he was saying about this extremely important piece of evidence. And instead of just saying it was a mistake, I wasn't really paying attention. I don't think it's critical. He allows himself to be ridiculed. He looks like a fool. And he keeps trying, he keeps trying to avoid answering the question. What, he's, what he keeps trying to say is, this is what I thought yesterday. Now I think something differently today. And Robinson won't let him get away with that. Robinson says, what is the answer? Were there ashes? Or weren't there? Give us a straight answer on the clean break, on the on the new break. And then Robinson goes, or would you like to come up with a third answer? Can I help you? Do you want me to suggest a third answer? Finally, what Fleet says is, I've answered it as best I can. Yesterday, I thought it was one way. Now I think it's another. That's all I can tell you. I tell you all that just to show you how he just was not a bright guy. He was not well prepared. And when he actually talked about what he did that day, it demonstrated the extent of his ineptitude and incompetence. And on the subject of the barn, I know I've covered this. I just want to make this point and make sure that it's clear with everybody. In looking at Fleet's testimony again before today's episode, I noticed that he says, that he came out right around noon, came out of the house into the yard, ran into Medley. Now, we know Medley was up in the barn at 10 minutes of noon, sometime between 11.48 and noon, Medley was up there. Fleet, in his testimony, says, I got out of the house right around noon, within a minute or two of noon, either way, and ran into Medley and some other officers. But he specifically mentions Medley. And then he's asked, what did you do? Well, I gave them directions. That's when he told Medley to go down and catch the 1229 train to Providence, get get down to the station, wherever it was, and catch it. And then he's asked, what did you do? And he goes, I went straight to the barn. Did you go with anybody? No. Did you go up into the loft? Yes. And what did you notice about it? The only thing he noticed about the, the loft was that it was hot. Oh, and then he's asked on cross-examination, are you aware at the time you went up there into the loft of the barn, are you aware whether any other officer had been up there before you? And Fleet says no. That confirms, that leaves absolutely no doubt that Medley did not mention this to him. 
And this is not my spin on it. This is how it all played out. This is what Medley said. This is what Fleet said. Is there any doubt in your mind that Medley's lying? Well, maybe there's a little bit of doubt, but can you give me a credible explanation as to why Medley would have gone up, gotten hard proof that Lizzie was lying, that her alibi was false and not mentioned it to Fleet and that Fleet had gone up. Admittedly, Fleet is a moron, but Fleet had gone up and not made the same observations as Medley. How can that be? The most important thing here is that Medley said nothing to Fleet. Forget about Fleet failing to notice anything. If an elephant had been rampaging through the yard, tearing pear trees up by their roots and knocking down the fence, Fleet wouldn't have noticed it. But Medley not mentioning what he's found to Fleet, doesn't that strike you as improbable? Doesn't that make Medley's story look absolutely unbelievable? Maybe not. Maybe I'm the one who's missing something. I don't know. But I think I'm right. One other thing I want to say about Fleet on on the Thursday, on Thursday is one of the things he did was he asked to get into the walk-in closet on the second floor, the big walk-in closet that he had noticed when he came out of the guest bedroom. He wasn't able to get into it during his first trip up to the guest bedroom. That's the first time he sees Mrs. Borden's body. He's just been in the house a few minutes. He comes out of the guest bedroom and he can't open the walk-in closet door. And then he barges into Lizzie's bedroom. So half an hour, 45 minutes later, sometime later, he's back in the house. He's back up on the second floor. He's doing a second interview with Lizzie. And at that point or shortly thereafter, he gets her to unlock the walk-in closet for him. It may have had some small bureaus or some small pieces of furniture that had sliding drawers or had doors on hinges. And it had a lot of dresses that were hanging from the wall. Apparently there were nails. And then the dresses, I assume, were hanging on hangers off the nails. And apparently there was a clothesline running from one end of the walk-in closet to the other with a sheet over it. And that sheet was used to keep dust off the dresses or to keep the dresses from fading or something. I, I don't know exactly. But when he's talking about going into the clothes closet, he's asked, why did you go in there? It was locked. And he goes, well, I wanted to make sure there was no homicidal maniac hiding in the walk-in clothes closet. Okay. You might as well check. Then he's asked about the dresses and he says he examined them and he's, his testimony from one hearing to the next changes. So at the trial, he says, I didn't really look at them, but at the probable cause hearing, he had said, I was looking at them one by one to see if there was blood on them. And he's asked at the trial, isn't that what you said at the probable cause hearing? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I did. So if you're going to look at these dresses to see if there's blood on them, aren't you going to look at them carefully? Aren't you going to inventory them? Aren't you going to make a memorandum or a report or have somebody, one of your underlings, make a note, dictate to him? What's the point of looking at them if you're not going to look at them closely? You're not going to remember which ones you looked at. You're not going to be able to describe them. You don't even keep track of how many there are. So when he's asked all those questions, how closely did you look at them? Not very closely. What were you looking for? I guess blood. Can you tell us how many there were now? You suspect that Lizzie is involved. Her attitude, her dislike of her stepmother that she makes so evident to you, her claim to be up in this broiling hot loft of the barn in her long dress with the long sleeves, and you're kind of looking at the dresses, but you're kind of not. 
and you don't know how many there were and you don't know what style they were and you can't describe them and you you certainly didn't turn them inside out to see if they'd been worn inside out to cover up other dresses while the murders were being done. What's the point? That's the thing that gets me is what's the point? Does he think that all he needs to do is walk through the house, poke his head into a closet, maybe open a drawer and just look at it and close it again, not look, not rummage through the drawer, not take all the socks out, not examine it carefully? He thinks that's all he needs to do. What purpose does that serve? I guess it's better than nothing. But this is the crime of the century. It, it is. It is the crime of the century. It is the most shocking, brutal, sensational crime in the 19th century in America. It's the one that has lasted and gone on and endured. Maybe the Donner Party cannibalism crimes are more famous, maybe. But it's up there. And your name will be known forever because of this case. You and Marshall Hilliard and the other officers investigating this case. The city is going to be known for this murder. For all you know at this time, even if you're not thinking in those terms, for all you know at this time, there's an axe murderer or a maniac in the community. Aren't you going to do everything you possibly can to gather as much evidence as to try to figure out to get a picture? And doesn't that require that you go through that house with a very careful examination, a very careful inspection? and that you do it in a methodical way, and that you don't just have two morons trailing behind you gawking at the same things you're gawking at. He doesn't even keep reports of this Thursday afternoon search. He has no police report, doesn't include it in his police reports. He says so at the trial. I mean, if you keep a police report shortly after you do this, and you look at it a month later, Something that you noted in that report that might not have seemed all that important at the time suddenly has new significance because of other things you've learned in the interim. That's why you keep these records, because you piece them together. It's just like the shows you see on TV where they've got the bulletin board and they've got the picture and they've got the strings with the thumbtacks and the strings are going this way and that way from one picture to another. And you've got notes and you've got maps. It's putting things together. It's gathering all the evidence and making connections. And if you don't keep track of the evidence, you're not going to make the connections. Anyway, we're not quite done with the day of the murders. We will get to this. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to the day of the murders next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I did. I appreciate you listening as always. And until next week, take care.